0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith. And you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: Please join me in welcoming back Monsignor Charles Pope. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, uh, in, in, ad, in, in Lent, uh, we, we meditate on... Our need for repentance, but also another related topics like the brevity of life on earth, and why it 's important to get ready to see you, so help us tonight to meditate a little bit on what we began advent with, which is uh, the ashes on our forehead, and they, they they mean a lot of things in the scripture, so help us to meditate a bit tonight on that and uh, prepare ourselves also for a a follow-up talk next week on the five hard truths that will set us free. So we ask all these blessings now in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I uh, give a lot of talks and I'm kind of doing the tour of all the Arlington parishes, even though I'm assigned in Washington, D.C. Uh, so I'm, 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 I'm glad to see all these parishes. I'm, I think the last four or five talks I've given have all been at parishes in the Arlington diocese that I've never been to before. So uh, it's, it's good to get out and get around and and uh, be about, so I did grow up in um, Woodbridge Dale City, uh, and I ended up studying for Washington because by the time I entered the seminary, I had been a, a choir director and an organist in one of the city parishes, and uh, that's how I ended up studying there, but I grew up in Woodbridge Dale City, and gosh, in those days, in the early 70s, like places like Percival were considered sort of like way out, I mean, past West Virginia somewhere, you know, <laughs> so so even Chantilly and Dulles Airport was like, man, I can see the mountains, you know? Uh, so uh, we've certainly spread out to the West a lot since uh, the years that I grew up. All right, let's get right to the topic, and, and uh, I want to make a disclaimer at the beginning. Uh, I am a joyful Christian, and I, I love what the Lord's doing for me, and I, I'm a very happy priest, and I love the work that I'm doing, and I uh, have a... A sense that um, the topic tonight is going to be a little bit um, heavy, but I just want to rem- i don't want you to think that I'm not a, a joyful Christian. I love my life, and God's been so good to me. You know, every time you—you know, you get the same question I get ten thousand times a day: "How you doing?" And don't miss that. That's an evangelical moment, right? It's an evangelical moment because um, that's a chance for you to sort of preach in a moment. You can—you can—we all just say "fine" or something like that. But I wouldn't just say, and then when people ask me, how you doing? I say, I am pretty well blessed for a sinner. Or maybe I'll say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more blessed than I deserve. Or I might, I might say, uh, to quote St. Paul, uh, the longer version, but uh, I'm always caring about in my body the dying of Christ so that also the, the rising of Christ may be manifested in me. <laughs> and that's the long Pauline answer to how you doing. What you're doing at at every moment, brothers and sisters, is you're living the Paschal mystery. And that's what Paul's getting at there, right? That we're always carrying about in our body, or our life, in other words, the dying of Christ, so that also the rising or the life of Christ might be manifested in us. So I want to just say that although the topic tonight can get a little heavy at times, uh, and we need to look at those things, the heavier things, but we also need to remember that we're we're joyful Christians and we're not afraid of death and dying. We're not afraid of those moments of the cross and those moments that uh, sort of humble us, because we all know that somehow it's all working together for our good. St. Paul says, all things work together for good for those who love and trust the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. Romans 8. So I just want to encourage you with those words that even when we get into some of the heavier topics tonight, let's not lose our way. And um, even death itself, if you're faithful, the day you die is the greatest day of your life, you know, because you you go finally, you get out of this crazy world, this, this insane asylum that we're living in lately, and we go home to be with God. Now, of course, certainly there's going to be judgment, that's to be sober about, and there's probably going to be a little purgatory. For most of us but you know you're stepping up and stepping out if you're faithful right so even there we the most negative concept that we could talk about tonight death namely is not for a christian we're not to be like those who have no hope says saint paul when it comes to death so with all that in mind i want that disclaimer at the beginning because we have some kind of heavy topics i was given this title i didn't make it up I was given it by the reverend deacon there, soon to be priest and and um, he said ashes to ashes. Alright, so we're gonna do ashes to ashes. When I was a kid I never got Ash Wednesday. I never understood. I didn't like getting dirt smeared on my forehead. I, asked, I remember sometimes complaining to my mother that I think I was getting sick and I tried not to go. But I am amazed how many people pile into church to get ashes. Even those who never go to church any other time They will pile into church to get ashes, and I never understood the appeal at all, and I still don't. I don't mean to sound impious, please don't misunderstand me, but it is not an appealing thing for me to get dark soot smudged on my forehead. Uh, And yet we can barely keep people, I mean, they're knocking on the door before 6 a.m. on Ash Wednesday. It's amazing, amazing. But with all that in mind, I'm afraid, as we all often have a problem, that many people kind of want to get the thing, but they, they haven't really thought of some of the implications of really what those ashes are saying and what they mean. And so what I'd like to do is to spend a little bit of time with you tonight on some... What, what ashes mean if we look up their biblical roots and what, uh, what uh, some of the things that are being taught to us, and not just being taught to us, but some of the things that we are implicitly saying in accepting those ashes on our forehead as we began a Lent. Now next week, to continue the topic, I want to kind of extend the topic, and the, sort of the title of the talk next week is Five Hard Truths That'll Set You Free, and I'll list those five later. All right. Let's get started now with your notes in front of you. What do the ashes signify? These are very challenging teachings and also challenging things that we are, in effect, attesting to if we receive them. So the first thing is humility. Now, I want to read this text of Job to show you the idea of ashes related to humility. Job said... This is from the 42nd chapter. Job said, You, O Lord, asked, Who is this who obscures my counsels without knowledge? Job goes on, Surely I spoke of things that I do not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, Listen now, and I will speak, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. That's what you said, Lord. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Okay. So in this case, ashes now become a sign of humility. Humility is that gift to have a reverence for the truth about ourselves. Humility doesn't, doesn't mean just simply an aw shucks, I'm not much of anything. And No, you're gifted. Every one of you is gifted. We're all gifted. But we always remember humility is that reverence for the truth about ourselves. Now, what that means then is if you are gifted, it's a gift. And more likely, you received everything you have from God. But beyond that, you also received it from God likely through somebody else so someone taught you to read someone taught you to speak and teach and uh, uh, yeah well maybe to teach uh, but to speak and 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 to to learn and, and to begin to whatever careers and there's an awful lot of people that have helped to make you who you are so at the end of the day let's never forget that whatever gifts that we do have they came from god every good and perfect gift comes from above from the father of lights says the book of james so if we have gifts they come first from god but 99% of the time from god through somebody else. So humility begins with a reverence for that truth about ourselves, that we do have gifts but even our gifts are from God and through others. But humility also regards this truth that we ain't all that. We are basically dust and water, dust and a- or ashes and water. We are, we tend to become very grandiose if we're not careful and we forget And so Job now, in the presence of God, realizes the majesty of God and the tininess of himself before God. Now, humility is a very great gift for us because, well, let's make it plain. All the saints say the same thing. All the scripture scholars, all the spiritual directors down through the ages say, your biggest sin, your biggest problem is pride. Bar none. Bar none. And it's so, so serious that most of the time you don't even know what's going on. And it's probably at the root of every single sin that we commit. And so serious is pride, says St. Thomas in the Summa, that in order, so serious is pride that as a remedy for this sin, God permits other sins to be the remedy. Now that's only saints can talk like that amen you know we don't what did you just say father i did uh, do, uh. saint thomas said "Ooh, i'm safe now Ooh. but listen and thomas goes on to describe what he means he says there are certain sins particularly sins of the flesh that cause us to be very ashamed particularly things like gluttony and drinking too much and sexual sins and these sins are wrong and we should not do them and God never causes us to do them but he permits them because that's how serious pride is and those particular sins have a particularly powerful way of humbling us and really humiliating us we can be very humiliated by these types of sins there's a lot of shame associated with them and so Thomas says that's how serious pride is and that's why humility is such a powerful and necessary and precious gift to us. Because the biggest thing that's keeping you out of heaven is pride. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't any other sins. It just means that this really is the key problem. It's how Adam and Eve got into trouble. Basically, what did Adam and Eve hear from the devil? They heard, look, you can't trust this God. So he attacked trust. He may have given you everything, but he's lying to you. He's holding something back. You can't trust him, but then, then he picks at their pride. He says, now look, why are you letting anybody tell you what to do? Now, you eat that fruit and you be the God. You will be as gods. You will decide what's right and wrong. And so fundamentally the the original sin of Adam and Eve is I will not serve, I will not be under any authority, I will decide what I want to do and I will decide whether it is right and wrong. And that's why it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I will not trust God to tell me what is good and evil. I need to know for myself and experience it for myself and I will decide. So I don't really trust you God and I will not be under your authority and i will do what i want to do and i will decide whether it's right and wrong so you see how serious original sin was fundamentally it was a sin of ingratitude and a lack of trust but first and foremost it's a sin of pride pride also is the essential sin of the devil who said i will not serve i will not re- i will not accept god's plans i will not serve under this and he fell from heaven over this so again You see how deadly and how serious pride is. Now, you receive then ashes on your forehead. And one of the things that we're saying, therefore, if you look at the biblical roots of of ashes, that one of the roots is humility. I am but dust and ashes. I am but, if you will, dust and water. And um, God is far greater. God is holy. And I am not. God is all-wise, and I am not. Okay. Now, it's interesting, too, that um, we sort of today have tri- sort of trivialized God in our culture. To the degree that he's around at all, many people want a kind of a harmless grandfather figure, more of a divine butler who steps and fetches for us, rather than uh, truly God and Lord. Uh, Jesus has been turned into a kind of a harmless hippie who says pleasantries. Honestly, brethren, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is our brother, he is our Savior, he loves us, but he is God and he is Lord and he is to be adored and he is to be respected. And when he commands, we ought to obey out of humility, see? And likewise with God the Father. And if you would look at every theophany in the Old Testament, Those who did encounter God, whether directly or through an angel, were very disconcerted, so much so that God had to assure them not to be afraid. Now, even John, the apostle, who encountered Christ in His heavenly glory... Now remember, John was the one who was next to Him at the Last Supper and leaned back and talked to Him. They were very close in this world as Jesus walked this earth. But even John, when he's caught up into this vision and sees Jesus in all of His glory, falls to his face before the Lord of glory. We've got to understand that there is an infinite gulf between us, well, a, a, a wide gulf between us and God. And we come before God with confidence, with hope, and with joy because Jesus has granted us access to the Father. But we come before the Father also with great humility and reverence. And there's a kind of a diminishment of that, I think, in our culture today, and especially you know, in, in, in modern settings in the church that very often you know, make light of our duties to genuflect or make light of our, our duties to, to show reverence and to dress in a certain way and to conduct ourselves before God in a way that's joyful, but in a way that is also deeply reverent because he is God. He is God and we are not the ashes remind us then of our humble state and likewise they remind us if you will of God's great holiness and so if you would Job spends most of the book of Job complaining <laughs> I demand an explanation basically what did I do wrong and finally God comes as if out of a whirlwind and speaks to Job and in effect, the answer for his suffering and this cross that he gets from God is um. That's very satisfying, emotionally anyway. Basically, God's answer to Job for why all this has happened to him and why the cross and why all this suffering is none of your business. Now, in effect, what God does is he says, Who is this who obscures divine plans? And Job says, Look, uh, I'm sorry. Job, i got some questions to ask you. And if you can answer the questions I ask you, I will explain to you why this has happened to you. Job, where were you? When I put the heavens in place and the cosmos, where were you when I put the stars? Where were you when I put them there and they called out to me and I called them each by name and they called to me, here we are. Where were you, Job, when I did that? And how did I do it? And Job, where were you when I sculpted out the, scooped out the place for the sea and said to its proud waters, this far but no further? Where, where were you, Job? And how did I do all that? If you can answer me, I will answer you. And Job just goes, oop. And now, it's it's not an emotionally satisfying answer, but it is an answer. Because in effect, what the Lord is saying is, if I try to explain to you everything that I'm doing, why I allow certain sufferings, why I manifest certain glories and certain things I don't do, if I were to try to explain all this to you, all you would hear would be thunder. You wouldn't even understand if I did tell you. Our minds are very small. We like to praise ourselves because we've to the moon and back, etc. We have our computers. We're very clever, but God is much greater. See? And so humility is a very important key that Job experiences in, and everyone really experienced in this um, theophany, if you will, of God. All the theophanies of the Old Testament, all the appearances of God always have this experience if you will of being overwhelmed by the glory and the majesty and the power of god of being reduced to silence of falling on their face before the lord all right so god is our father and he has a tender love for us but he is god and he is lord and we have to keep that balance now with all that in mind um i could go on and on about humility but again we um, just maybe a, a desert father story just to show you that god can't simply be reduced to our little Concepts and words, but one day one of the Desert Fathers, I think it was Abba Moses, he came to his students. And the Desert Fathers often spoke in very ambigu- ambiguous ways. They would, he came out and he said, "Every word about God is a, more of a distortion than a description," and he left. And of course, this is uh, common with the Desert Fathers. And so they brag him back, "Tell us, Abba Moses, what does this teaching teaching mean?" Because you see, when you speak to us of God, you use words. At this, Abba Moses laughed uproariously and he said, When I speak of God, don't listen so much to the words, but listen more to the silence between the words. Because they speak more. Hmm? It's another similar desert father saying, Abba Pokemon, or one of the, you know, uh, not Pokemon, but (laughs) Pokemon. um, He said one day, he um, he says, those who know, Do not say. Those who say do not know. And he left. (laughs) Bring him back. What do you mean by this? He says, Well, he says, How many of you know the smell of a rose? And they all raised their hand. Put it into words. And everyone stayed silent. And the point here is that we just can't reduce even the smell of a rose to words and really say that we've described it. How much more so? Can we not reduce God to concepts and words? He is God. He is existence itself. We have to be very humble. St. Thomas says the same thing in his commentary on Boethius. He says that we know God in three ways. Through through the book of creation, through what he has made. We know God through the revelation, namely through the, the word that he has revealed in scripture. And he says, above all, We know God, tamquam tantum ignotum. Above all, we know God as unknown. Now, that's the big theologian, Thomas, who wrote those big thick books like Summas, you know. Imagine, that's called the summary, right? Okay, The Summa is called the summary. Are you following me? We've got to have a lot of humility. Big, big words and fancy concepts that we can attach to God and... Words like theophany and apokatastasis and all these great, grand words that we use. In the end, it's baby talk. God is other. God is bigger. God is holy. And we are not. Okay? You see the vision. All right, we've got to move on, but I would just simply say that we want to begin with, when you received ashes on Ash Wednesday, the first thing you said was, or was said to you, in effect, was humility. That's how the scriptures speak of ashes. Moving on to your next page Um, hmm. my pages are out of order what is your next page how does it begin Hmm? wisdom yeah death and thank you good ashes are now a reminder of of death and a call to wisdom so again most of you know that uh, most of you when you received ashes there are different formulas that the priest or the deacon can use but most of the time it's remember you are dust and unto dust you shall return okay um Bottom line, can I summarize it? You are going to die. Let me say it again, because you didn't hear that, I don't think. You are going to die. And you don't get to say when. You are going to die. And you don't get to say when. Now, it's a salient, as I say in the note there, and a sobering reminder that we often get worked up and anxious about many passing things. While at the same time, we are unmindful of the certain and most important thing for which we must really be ready, which is, um, again, that we are going to die. We maximize the minimum and we minimize the maximum in our lives. We're all running after football games and worrying about all sorts of other things. And some of them might be important in the moment, but they're not as important as getting ready to die and go home and see God. Is your life about one thing? Okay. Saint Paul says, this one thing I do. I press on to the prize marked out for me in Christ Jesus my Lord. This one thing I do. Book of James says the double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Are you double-minded? Are you single-minded? Now don't answer how you're supposed to answer it. Be honest. I would argue that most of us are not just double-minded, we're 80-fold 80, 80, 80 minded. we got all kinds of things going on and our, all, a lot of our priorities are wrong and we're, we're maximizing the minimum and minimizing the maximum. We're focusing more on passing things and often silly things, and we're, but we're not focusing on eternal things and getting ready to see God. Now look, your goal in life is to die loving God and your neighbor. And does everything that you do, including coming tonight to listen to a loudmouth priest, does all of that somehow move you toward that goal? And are you that intentional and conscious about it? Or do we just kind of go here and go there, running around chasing butterflies? Sadly, because we live in a very entertainment-based culture, we're all in a big hurry to get somewhere. We're often living very unreflective lives. And even the good things that we do, it's more like quick check off the box. I've got to I gotta get to Mass. Praise God that you get to Mass. But so often we just do it more to get it done, rather than, my gosh, th- this is the most essential thing I do all week. I'm going to be ready and prepared. And, but most people, I don't say everybody here tonight, but too many people kind of treat Mass like getting a flu shot. You know, let's get this over as quickly and painlessly as possible i got to do it to check off the God box so I don't feel guilty and don't get crushed like a bug. So, good, got that one done. And now I'm, off to the, I'm rushing off to something else. Lord knows what. Now, again, please, don't... We all struggle with this. But at some point, you are going to die! And what are you doing to get ready to meet God? And that is the essential thing that is said to you and me on Ash Wednesday those who are wise are getting ready for that important event. Those who are unwise, what the Bible calls foolish, are running around worrying about passing things and spending almost no time at all. Now, by the way, every funeral that I preach, I spend more than half the funeral talking not about the, the one who has died, but rather I spent most of the funeral talking to the ones who are still alive, and I said oh, look, you're going to die. And then I ask them, what are you doing to get ready? And I try to give them a fourfold plan based on Acts 2.42 to get ready to meet God. But I'm not letting them off the hook because I'm going to tell you right now, when, especially when it comes to funerals, more than 80% of people at the average funeral are not going to church. Most of them are not praying. They are not, uh, they are not reading scripture. They are, very, many of them, locked in very serious unrepented sin. And that's no way to get ready to meet God. Somebody says, well, Father, funerals are sensitive times and we shouldn't raise uh, unpleasant topics, should we? It's the only time I got them. Now, I try to be, you know, friendly about it, but at the end of the day, you know, and I, I even say to them, I understand that some of you here today may be locked in very serious, unrepented sins. Now, look, don't. Don't be, you know, continue in that. Fall on your knees and say, Lord, help me. And the Lord will help you. Get to confession, but don't go on calling good or no big deal what God calls sin. Don't do that. Because in parable after parable, 21 of the 38 parables are dedicated to questions of death and judgment and hell. In parable after parable, there are wise virgins and foolish virgins, sheep and goats, those on the right, those on the left, those who are prepared when the king returns and those who are not. Those who are prepared when the when the wedding begins and those who are not. Those who hear, come you blessed of my father and those who hear, depart from me, you evildoers. I don't know you. Likewise again, over and over again. You know, the Lord, most of the words, most of the teaching on hell comes right from the mouth of Jesus. Not from some angry Old Testament. And it's Jesus who speaks mostly about hell. And nobody loves you more than Jesus. And yet nobody taught about hell and the significance of getting ready for Judgment Day more than Jesus Christ. So you see, we've got to get smart. And so in at the beginning, on Ash Wednesday, you are dust. Remember, remember you are dust. And unto dust you shall return. Translation, you are going to die. You don't get to say when. And you've got to get ready. Okay. So we'll talk a little bit more about that because one of the five hard truths that will set you free that we'll talk about next week is that one. You're going to die. Okay, that's hard truth number five, all right? So we'll talk more about that. Now, there's also a very related concept of the ashes that, um, uh, that they're a sign of the passing quality of worldly glories and pleasures. So here's a quote from Lamentations and also Malachi. Those who ate delicacies are now desolate in the streets. Those reared in purple now embrace ash pits. Hmm? Book of Lamentations. As you know, that's a a book of Lamentations about the destruction of Jerusalem, all right? And uh, likewise, then, we read from Malachi. Then you, namely the the just, will trample upon the wicked. They will be like ashes under the sole of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord God Almighty. And thus, neither the glories of this age or its proud pseudo-wisdom nor its unrepented sinfulness will escape, for Scripture says, "By His word." This is from Second Peter. Now, by the Lord's word, the present heavens and the present earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Now, there's a beautiful gloss on this in, a, in the magnificence of the old African-American spirituals that God gave Noah the rainbow sign. <laughs> no more water, but the fire next time. Hmm? isn't that beautifully creative huh just nothing more creative than the african-american spirituals and just taking the gospel and just putting it into a beautiful scintillating phrase like that what is a rainbow it's a combination of fire and water isn't it right the fire of the sun and the water of the water vapor of this earth interacting fire and water together you see And so, there is again this reminder to us that all the glories of this world will one day be in ashes. And all the pseudo-wisdom and the empires and the wicked and their proud ways, this all will be stubble one day, and just ashes, you know. And so again, we have to not be too impressed or mesmerized uh, by this world's power or glory. Neither should we fear that its errors and its persecutions will ultimately prevail. It will all go to ashes. Only the just will escape the doom of this world, all right? We are on a the Titanic. We are on a doomed ship. Do not, therefore, my brothers and sisters, there's both a consoling and a challenging message, right? look let's be honest we're all you know the the good preaching afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted right and we're all in both categories so at one level we need to be challenged do not be impressed do not think that this world can really seal the deal and give you anything that will last the world will give you blessings yes it will and it will take every one of them back and assign you a stone cold tomb the world can't seal the deal but likewise Do not be so anxious that evil does seem to prevail. Evil has its day and the Lord Jesus has his hour. But the date of this fate of this world is already sealed in the heart and the mind of God. And even now, I mean, in the age of the church, we've seen wickedness come and wickedness go. Where is Caesar now? Where is Nero? Where is Domitian? Likewise, you know, just keep moving forward into history, you know. Where are some of those wicked so-called Holy Roman Emperors? Where are, where is Napoleon now? See, where is the Soviet Socialist Republic? Where where are these things now? They are gone in the church and we're still here preaching the gospel. And every one of those entities said they would destroy God's church. And we ended up reading the funeral rites over them. Are you praying with me? Do not be too discouraged. Now, we have a fight on our hands. Don't. We gotta fight for souls. There's a beautiful line in the Psalm. I have seen the wicked towering and triumphant. I pass by again. He he was gone. I looked for him. He was nowhere to be found. Wickedness remains but for a moment. But the gospel is preached and goes on through the centuries, all right? And likewise at the end, I just I did check my Bibles on it, just to be sure, okay? I checked the, the last page, Jesus wins. <laughs> Everything in this world is reduced finally to ashes, ashes, all right? So if there's time, I want to read a couple of hymns that remind us regarding these things. Now, there's also then a sign that the ashes are also for us a sign of mourning. That is to say, um, we all know that there is grief. There is sorrow in this world, all right? So here we have from Samuel, Ezekiel and also 2 Samuel and they will make their voice heard over you and they will cry bitterly and cast dust on their heads and they will wallow in ashes. So mourning, weeping comes, you see. He's talking about the first destruction of Jerusalem, the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and Ezekiel is saying how they will just cast ashes over their heads and they will weep and they will wail at the terrible destruction that is coming. There's another thing. Tamar sadly has been raped by Amnon, her half-brother, And it simply says that in her mourning she put ashes on her head and she tore her long sleeve garment that was on her and she put her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. So ashes are a kind of a sign of the mourning, the sorrows that certainly come to all of us, either because of injustice or because of loss. We all know, you know, we all know tragedies. We know losses. We've had to grieve. There is in this world, it is called a valley of tears. Now, again, I don't have time to give you a complete soteriology, but you know, God did have a different plan for us originally. You you know that, right? Plan A, it was called what? Paradise. Paradise. But Adam and Eve said they wanted a better deal. Welcome to the better deal. Now, again, God even told them the other plan is suffering and death. And they said, knowing that, they still said, I want it. I will not be told what to do. So Adam and Eve ushered in a plan B. God did have paradise for us. Sadly, our ancestors, Adam and Eve, rejected it. And guess what? You've ratified it. Don't tell me you haven't. Every one of us in this room is a sinner. We've all said, you know, Adam and Eve, I think you had a good idea. No, Father, I never said that. Yes, you did. (laughs) Every time we sin, in effect, we're sort of ratifying it. We're saying, well, count me in. I'll take a little bit of the, uh, the prophets from that approach, see? And uh, so, so, there is, in this world, it is steep with mourning, sorrow, with sufferings. And we're going to talk about that next week when we talk about the five hard truths that will set you free. Number one, life is hard! We'll talk about that next week, okay? So, but uh, again, I, I will, we just want to kind of introduce to today, this idea that we do live in, pa- not in paradise, but in paradise lost. Lost. That's where we are today. And you will have times of weeping, of mourning in this valley of tears. Okay? It's just our lot. Now, again, there's a beautiful thought about this, though. God, in order to solve this problem, because he so respects our freedom, did not come and simply cancel our decision. He said, I tell you what, since you've chosen suffering and death, I will meet you there and I will meet you at the cross and I will carry a cross and I will suffer and die and I'll make your suffering and your crosses and your sorrows a way back for you. The very result of your sin I will allow now to become the bitter but healing remedy that leads you back to me and I will not exempt myself. I will meet you there your no I will take up because of all that suffering your no I will not accept your no but I will take up the results of it and I will suffer and I'll give you a way back And that's the beauty of God's beautiful wisdom for us respecting our freedom not undoing our choice but meeting us there and saying can we stay in a longer conversation and that's allowing our suffering to become the very way back. Now, I want to begin to move into the next page, and the next page basically shows us that in receiving ashes, we're not just sort of reminded of biblical themes, but we're also, in a way, making some commitments. The first thing is that ashes are a sacramental that point to the sacrament. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let me, let me say one thing that is most annoying to almost every priest and many lay people too, people are almost insanely adamant about getting their ashes on Ash Wednesday, so much so that they um, would almost rather get ashes than Holy Communion. And sadly, a lot of priests note that when people get their ashes, they go out the side door and don't stay for Communion. Some priests I know were so angry about it that they started giving out ashes after Communion. Now, I don't think we're liturgically permitted to do that, but I do understand the frustration. People almost... When I'm, when I'm, when I, if, I, if I'm out on Ash Wednesday, people run up to me at the subway. Do you have ashes? No. But I do have Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. Would you come to church to receive Him? Well, Father, I, I, I need ashes. And so one of the great tragedies is that ashes are a sacramental, not a sacrament. Right? Sacraments are more powerful than sacramentals. So let me just look at the notes here with you. The Old Testament declared, you shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and put them in ceremony a clean place outside the camp. And they shall be kept by the Israelite community for use in the water of cleansing. It is for the purification from sin. For an un- the unclean person puts some ashes from that burned purification offering into a jar and pour fresh water over them. Then a man who was ceremonially cleansed to take some hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle the tent and all the furnishings and the people who were there." In other words, on, the, on that day of Yom Kippur where they burnt up that, uh, the, 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 the heifer and so on, they would save some of those ashes, mix them with water and sprinkle people just like we do in mass with, with water. Now, i got news for you. The blood of goats and bulls cannot save. Only the blood of Jesus. Are you praying with me? It was a sign of mercy, a sign that God was offering forgiveness for sin, but the ashes of some heifer, some cow, mixed with water is not going to forgive sin. Only the blood of Jesus Christ forgives sins. So therefore, this idea of this, the, the, the using the ashes to point to forgiveness is a beautiful thing, but if all it does is point, well, let me ask you a question. If you see a sign that says Washington, there's an arrow. You don't park there, do you? You say, oh, I'm in Washington! No, no, no. That's a sign that's saying that away. way It's not Washington. The sign is not Washington. Are you praying with me? Sacramentals are like that. They point. To sacraments, and they point ultimately to the Lord Himself. Therefore, the ashes point to the confessional that away. The ashes point to the blood of Jesus in Holy Communion that away. And sacraments are greater than sacramentals. You can rush to church to get a sacramental, but if you're not receiving sacraments, there's no point in it because only the blood of Jesus. And that blood reaches us in the sacrament of confession and the sacrament of Holy Communion. Only the blood of Jesus can really forgive sin. Sacramentals point, but are not the reality. The Holy Eucharist is Jesus. It is the the reality. He is that reality. And likewise in confession, that if you will, that blood of Jesus reaches through the voice of the priest and the outstretched hand. To, to actually forgive sin. So, in a way, in taking this sign, this sacramental ashes, you say, I'm going to get to confession and I'm going to be regular with Holy Communion because the sacramental points to the reality. It is not the reality. Now, therefore, I want to just say to you, any of you who are planning to get through, uh, through Lent without going to confession, you're a disgrace. <laughs> Don't even think about going through Lent without getting to confession. Are you praying with me? And again, stay regular with Holy Communion. And this is really what it means to running to church to get ashes and say, okay, I'm done for Lent. Whoa, wait wait a minute, you know. You're just getting started. It's pointing. So in taking those ashes, in effect, you and I were saying that day, we are now going to be more serious about the sacrament to which the sacramental points now the next thing is that uh, the the, sacram- the ashes are a sign of true change scripture says when the news of Nineveh's possible destruction in 40 days reached the king of Nineveh he rose from his throne took off his royal robes covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust or some translations say the ashes sackcloth and ashes okay now here too repentance is symbolized but the symbol alone was not what saved Nineveh. Right? Are you clear on that? Sitting in sackcloth and ashes is not what saved them. Actual repentance took place there. Jesus says it. At the preaching of Jonah, they repented. He doesn't just say they sat there in sackcloth and ashes, and I saw them sitting in sackcloth and ashes and said, Well, that's a good enough. No. He the, the sackcloth and the ashes were a symbol. Of the repentance are you praying with me on that so you see likewise when we get the ashes well look i'm holy i got the ashes no 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 <laughs> that's a sign that's hopefully pointing and symbolizing and signifying if you will your and your repentance and mine so at the beginning of advent i acknowledge my sins i acknowledge my excesses i acknowledge my need to once again refocus on the lord come to a new mind a new way of thinking and i move forward with that attitude into length into the 40 days most of us have abstained from something or maybe engaged in some sort of um sacrificial acts maybe we're doing 40 days for life uh, maybe we're 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 spending more time reading the scriptures to our children maybe we're abstaining from lawful pleasures but these are real things that we are doing that hopefully point to a heart that has compunction for sin and an admittance that I need to once again focus more perfectly on God and his, and his role in my life. Does that make sense? Okay, so it's not just getting something smudged on your forehead. Simply sitting in sackcloth and ashes is not what saved Nineveh. Repentance is what, cha- what saved Nineveh. And then we, we finally come to the last one I want to mention with you, which is a summons to faith and to a new mind. Now, there is... Um, A beautiful thing that, in America anyway, we have it smudged in our forehead. I guess most of you are aware, but just in case you're not, in Europe and many other places in the world, you don't get it smudged on your forehead, they sprinkle it in your hair. How about that, ladies? Sprinkle that ashes in your hair. Um, Now, um, however they're imposed, the point is that the head is involved. Now there's something interesting here, because um, Jesus says here, in Matthew 11 woe to you Chorazin woe to you Bethsaida if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon in other words pagan cities they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes now the word repentance most of you who have been with me in any conferences I see a lot of at least to me tonight a lot of new faces but uh, I see also some familiar faces who have been with me and you've heard me on these topics but I would say that the word repentance metanoiate in the the plural imperative all y'all Repent, uh, metanoiate, all right? Now, repent, most people in English hear clean up your act. That's what most people hear when they hear the word repent. But metanoiate is a little richer and deeper than that in Greek. Literally, it means come to a new mind. Meta meaning change, noia meaning thoughts or knowledge and so on. So come and that te at the end is a, a plural imperative. All you all. Come to a new mind. Come to a new way of thinking. Change the way you think. Stop thinking in heresies and errors and worldly so-called wisdom. Throw all that away. Listen to God. Change your mind and agree with Him. That's really what repentance is. It's a call to a new mind. Now, it obviously affects our behavior, yes? Why? Well, sow a thought, reap a deed. Sow a deed, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. So a character reba destiny hmm? and it all begins in the old noodle what are you thinking all day long are they the thoughts of god or the thoughts of the world what are you thinking all day long what is going on in your mind all day long is it the things of god is it the wisdom of scripture or is it the foolishness of sitcoms and worldly priorities and marketers and worldly schemes what are you and i thinking all day long is it the beautiful vision for marriage and love and sexuality and family that God offers or are we steeped in a worldly way of thinking that sex is about me having fun with in whatever way I want to do what are what are we thinking all day long are our thoughts conformed to God's thoughts do you read scripture every day do you study the catechism or do you come to these sessions frequently to listen to a loudmouth priest do you what's going on in your mind in my mind all day long see is it the things of god or the things of the world see now those ashes on the forehead are in effect jesus they're a call to repentance one of the formulas that could be said when the the priest or the deacon put the ashes would say repent and believe the good news or repent and believe the gospel see so uh, that's another uh, formula but repent is again it's a very significant and deep conversion because it goes to our thoughts. No longer, says St. Paul in Romans 12, be, be, uh, be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You know, our minds are a real battleground. And we're, there's a lot of stinking thinking out in the world today. and We're steeped in that kind of stuff. And it takes a lot of work to get some of that stinking thinking out of there. It's so, it's, and it's so subtle, some of it, and so pervasive that we, even, we don't even know we're doing it half the time. See? Now, I'll give you a couple of quick examples of this, but there's a kind of an attitude that a lot of people bring to church, where, in effect, the Word of God and the teachings of the church are on trial in their mind, based on their understanding of the world. So, in other words, they bring the world in, into, and they, they put God's Word on trial. No, 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 you got it backwards. You're supposed to put the world on trial by God's word. You have the word of God in your mind. and You say, is what's being said out there in conformity with God's word? But most people get it backwards. They say, no, 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 that doesn't make sense to me. What you're saying up there, preacher. And, they, and they're only basing that because it sounds strange from their worldly point of view. You put the world on trial. Don't you ever put God's word on trial. You put the world on trial. You put this age on trial. St. Paul says, test everything by the Word of God. Does this conform with what God is teaching or not? If it doesn't, away with it. Now, I understand we're all making a journey. Not everything that God says immediately makes perfect sense to us. And we have questions and we need to work through them. But as long as we're in that process, we keep doing that, right? See? So, metanoiate, repent! Come to a new mind is the constant uh, call of Scripture. Now, again, our minds are like a sponge. Now, don't kid yourself. If you put a sponge in muddy water, it's coming out muddy. Don't kid yourself. And you know our minds are like a sponge. You put it in the muddy water of this world constantly. It's constant television, steady diet of worldly stuff. Your mind's gonna come out polluted. Don't kid yourself. Now, how do you clean a muddy sponge or a dirty sponge? You plunge it into clean water and you wring it out back into the clean water and you wring it out, back into the clean water and you wring it out. And where's the clean water? The word of God and the teachings of the church. That's the clean water and it takes time. But that's this great call if you will. Now the ashes on our forehead are sprinkled in our hair that, and that call, REPENT! Come to a new mind. All these come together with the ashes. So you see I'm just trying to leave, you know, the, the title today, Ashes to Ashes. Ashes to Ashes. So We've looked at some of the meaning of ashes in the Bible, some of them uh, speaking to us of biblical themes, but also some of the uh, things we looked at where we, in effect, kind of, as we received ashes, we're sort of saying something. I know that I need to repent, that I need to come to a new mind. I, I, I know that, uh, that I, I, need to, I have some sins that I actually need to repent of and some habits. I know that. I see that in my life. All right. Now, just to introduce next week, because I didn't see my, are we done? Okay, we're finished. So, let me just introduce next week, and um, I want to talk, kind of extend this theme a little bit, because we are living in a world that is doomed. God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, but the fire next time. The present heavens and the present earth are reserved for fire, see? And God will come and judge the living and the dead in the world by fire, Okay? Therefore, we, I think, need to kind of live in a way that accepts that this world is a little bit uncomfortable for us. We're not home. We're living out of a suitcase, brethren. This ain't it. All right. Home is with God in heaven. And we've got to kind of lay hold of the fact that this world is going to kind of beat up on us and it's going to cause us difficulties and sufferings. So the five hard truths that will set you free, I'll list them and we'll t- talk about them next week. Five hard truths that will set you free, okay? Because this world is ashes and it's going back to ashes. It's a place of suffering and trials and difficulties. And we have to learn to live humbly in a world that is passing away. And here it comes, the five hard truths. We'll talk about them next week. Number one, life is hard. Number two, your life is not about you. Number three, you are not that important. Number four, you are not in control. Number five, you're going to die. Now they're hard truths but they'll set you free and I'll explain how that'll happen next week when we get together they are hard truths but they set us free because they're speaking a truth to us that we're kinda living out of a suitcase down here. This isn't home it does not have all the comforts of home we're making a journey, and one day we want to get the heck out of here and go back and be with God. Meanwhile, I understand, you'd like to finish raising your kids, you've got to get a few things, I get that. We're not suicidal, No, don't. but there is a kind of a quality of this world that we have to become more sober about. And if we're not sober, we tend to become very quickly resentful, in a minute. And to avoid some of those resentments, we just need to accept soberly, living in Paradise Lost, we're going to have some bumps and grinds. And so we'll look at those five hard truths that will set you free next week. Blessings.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540 540- 540 Six three, five, seven one, Five, five, and may the glory of Christ's Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St John the Evangelist, pray for us.